Thanks, George. Um, good evening, everyone, and happy Easter. Uh, it's great to be with you all tonight, albeit virtually. And I just pray that tonight we would all be blessed by coming to God's word at this special time of the year. In the evenings at Crescent, we've been doing a series called Explaining Easter. In this series, we've been looking at some of the characters mentioned in the gospel accounts surrounding the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Four weeks ago, John Kennedy spoke to us about Caiaphas. We saw the hatred and jealousy of this high priest towards our true high priest, the Lord Jesus. From there, Jesus was taken to the cruel governor Pilate. Luis Mostacero walked us through this encounter between the prefect and the perfect. Pilate repeatedly declared that there was no wrong in the Lord Jesus, that he was an innocent man. But crumbling under the political pressure, Pilate washed his hands of the situation and allowed the Jews to have their way. And then in more recent weeks, Scott and Mika showed us Jesus' wonderful care for his disciple John and his mother Mary. Tonight we're looking at the encounter between Jesus and the dying thief, or the thief on the cross, as he's also known. Unlike our previous studies, we know very little about this character. We do not have any extra biblical records of him, and neither do we get a backstory recorded in scripture. We do not even know the man's name. This evening then, rather than focusing our eyes solely on the thief, I want us to primarily look through the eyes of this thief. Rather than seeing the spectacle of the thief on the cross, our aim tonight is to use the thief as the spectacles through which we can focus on his and our precious saviour. And I pray that through this short blink and you miss it encounter, we'll be able to proceed frame by frame to see a sort of slow motion blueprint for how a life is totally transformed by the Lord Jesus. The aim for our study this evening, and indeed the basis of our very salvation and continuation in the Christian walk can be summarized by Hebrews chapter 12, verses one to three, which says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So let's get into it. I have five main points that I want us to take away tonight. Five words beginning with R to make things a little easier to remember, just in case your head is even half as Sid-like as mine. Rebellion, realization, redemption, response, and relationship. So firstly, we'll think about rebellion. What was the thief like before he encountered Jesus? Secondly, realization. What did the thief realize? What changed him? Number three is redemption. What was Jesus accomplishing on the cross? The fourth R is what should be our response? And finally, relationship. Who is Christ to us? So our first R is rebellion. In Matthew and Mark, two thieves are mentioned briefly, and it's noted that both thieves joined in with the crowds as they hurled insults and mockery at Jesus. Let's read a little about that from Matthew 27, starting at verse 39. So reading from Matthew 27, verse 39, this is why Jesus is on the cross, and it says, Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. 
so also the chief priests and the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. This is very significant. Sometimes in my mind's eye, I have this concept of a nice friendly thief having maybe stolen a loaf of bread to feed his family. Perhaps that notion reveals I watched Aladdin too many times whenever I was younger. But in actual fact, the word used for robber or thief denotes a rebel. Petty thieves were not crucified by the Romans. Remember how Barabbas, the, the murderer and insurrectionist, was supposed to be on that cross where Jesus ended up? But instead, the Jews wanted the murderer freed and the author of life killed. Well, with the timing being Passover, an important Jewish festival, there was certainly even more of an atmosphere of Jewish rebellion against Rome than usual. And the fact that two criminals were crucified by the Romans at the same time Barabbas had been captured and there were three crosses suggests that the thief was more likely a terrorist accomplice than a shoplifter caught in the wrong place at the wrong time. He was a rebel against Roman rule and against Caesar. But we must not think he rebelled merely against the Roman authorities. No, something far worse. He was entrapped in the ranks of sin, rebelling against God's will and God's authority over his life. Both thieves, not just one, both join the mockery of Jesus. And the text tells us that they're doing it in the same way as the people and religious leaders. The thief taunts Jesus, verbally prodding him to see if he'll do something, maybe snap and rage. The thief, like everyone else, does not believe that Jesus is the son of God, a king or a saviour. Like the chief priests, scribes and elders who mock Jesus, the thief in the same way ridicules him. If you're a king, if you're so great, save us from the cross, free yourself from the cross. Teach your enemies a lesson, overthrow the Romans, then I'll believe. The thief was a rebel against heaven and against King Jesus. So what? He was bad. We're not like that, are we? Or are we? In what ways do we rebel against God? Well, we rebel against God when we sin, when we refuse God's best plan for our lives, when we fail to trust him. And sin is no petty thing. It's rebellion against the king of reality. Even if it seems a small sin, every sin is rebellion. God takes sin deadly seriously, quite literally. It required the sacrifice of the best he had, his son, as an act of undeserved love toward us. So we learn from our story that every sin is a mockery of Christ's sacrifice. Every wayward thought and act of selfishness is a scoff in, in the face of Christ. It is a spittle to him. As Christians, we must partner with God in killing sin before it kills us. So as we explore the text more tonight, don't see the thief's conversion and switch off thinking, I'm already a Christian. This just isn't relevant. We come to, but we also continue in Christ by depending wholly on him as our saviour. As Colossians 2.6 says, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So we've seen that the thief is in rebellion, rebellion against Roman authority and rebellion against God's authority. He's trapped in the company of sinners with all of us. But there's a dramatic turnaround for this thief. So what changed? As we read our passage from Luke, remember to look through the eyes of this thief as we think about our second hour, realisation. 
So reading from Luke chapter 23, starting at verse 32. So Luke 23, and then verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence on condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our, of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he, that's Jesus, said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. To fully grasp what we have just read, let's remember what Jesus has already been through. Jesus was betrayed and abandoned by his closest friends, falsely accused, beaten and sleep deprived. In Gethsemane, Jesus, knowing what was to come, had sweated blood, a rare condition called hematidrosis, caused by extreme distress. This made his skin incredibly tender and even more vulnerable to, scour to scourging. The Romans had repeatedly struck his back and legs with full force, alternating between soldiers so as to sustain maximum damage. The iron and sheep bones in the whip cut into his skin and tore through the muscles of the back of the Lord of Glory, producing quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. Internal organs were exposed. After one lash, there were another 38 to follow. And it is the simplicity of Luke's description that makes it even more devastating, I think. They crucified him. To his original audience, crucifixion needed no introduction. A seven-inch nail was hammered through each of Jesus' wrists, the nail severing his median nerves, causing excruciating bolts of fiery pain in both arms. As Jesus hung on the cross, he could breathe in, but breathing out was extremely difficult. In order to breathe out, you have to move your diaphragm up. And to do this, because Jesus was fixed to the cross, he had to push down against the nail through his feet and push up against the nails in his wrists. Each time he breathed out, he had to scrape his wounded back against the splintered wood of the cross. And of course, what else requires you to breathe in? Speech. Every word from Jesus that we have recorded is precious, but especially so from the cross, because every word cost him so dear. So what does he say? Well, we know what we in the place of the thief have said. We have expended our energy in rebellion. We have mocked and scorned him with our sin. So what do we receive in return? An eye for an eye? No. Father, forgive them. There comes the response. 
forgive them. Pause a moment and try to begin to wrap your head around those few words. Father, forgive them. These words came at such a cost for our Lord. The thief knew well the pain of breathing on the cross, never mind speaking. And so this teaches us a profound lesson. Free forgiveness always comes at a cost. There is nothing that we deserve nor can earn from God. It is why we are sinners, why we have nothing to offer, that we see Christ dying for us. But the free unmerited forgiveness that he offers comes at a great cost to our Saviour because sin is not a light thing that can just be brushed under the carpet. Sin causes damage and the one true God values justice and is justice and he reconciles his mercy and his justice at the cross of Christ. How ghastly sin must be in the sight of God that it requires such a sacrifice. And so at the cross we, the thief, the sinner, the rebel, realize our filthy rags, our guilt and sin and rebellion in absolute utter contrast against the spotless, guiltless Lamb of God. As we, his enemies, revile him and utter all kinds of threats against him, he lavishes us with abounding, unmerited mercy. It is at the cross that every soul must realize, I am guilty, but Jesus is innocent. As Peter would later pen, Jesus committed no sin, neither was the seed found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself wore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We see in verse 39 of Luke 23, that the forgiveness offered at the cross has caused a momentous change in our faith. While one of the criminals who was hanged reeled at Jesus saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. The other thief rebukes him saying, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And here's the key bit. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. At the cross, our sin is exposed. We recognize that justice requires punishment. And at the cross, we, like Pilate and the centurion, realize Jesus is innocent. The innocent on a cross. He is where Barabbas should be. He's the substitute. So the thief wonders. Jesus is the substitute for Barabbas because crime requires the wrath of Rome. But could Jesus be my substitute because my sin requires the wrath? of a holy God. Perhaps this Jewish thief who would have known the scriptures well recalls the story of Exodus when God instructed his people living in slavery in the land of Egypt to sacrifice a lamb, a spotless male lamb without blemish as a substitute and paint the wooden doorframe of each house with the blood. And when the plague of the death of the firstborn passed over, all those taking refuge in those homes were protected by the blood of the lamb. So then 1,300 years later, the thief on another Passover sees the blood of the spotless lamb trickle down a wooden cross. He sees the substitute who saves if we take refuge in him. I wonder, have you, in the place of the thief, realized, have you, have you grasped the deepest reality there is? Jesus is crucified because he claimed to be God. He is without sin because he is God. He is in this sinful world because he is the spotless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
The cross brings our sin to the surface, and that's painful. Maybe it's happening for you tonight. But it shows us we are drowning in sin, and so more than good advice and, and suggestions, sound bites to live by, uttered from the shore, we need a saviour to jump into the waters so that we might live. At the cross, the thief realises his sin and realises the sinlessness of Jesus. It is in this place of realisation that he accepts Jesus' free forgiveness, but at such a high price, and returns to the good shepherd, the shepherd who he now sees, laying down his life for wayward sheep. So how about our third hour, redemption? In Matthew, we hear Jesus cry these words, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We have seen already the physical, mental, and emotional sufferings of Jesus, but surely this cry gives us a glimpse into his greatest suffering. Jesus here quotes Psalm 22 to draw our attention to all of its predictions of the crucifixion, a psalm written before crucifixion was even invented. But for a guilty thief, abandoned and disowned by all of society, in his final hours in this world, what would he have made of this cry of anguish from the innocent one? As darkness overshadows the noonday sun, the sun is enduring the suffering of sin as the Father's righteous wrath is poured out. As Isaiah foretold 700 years prior, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, For our sake he, God the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God, in the person of Jesus, takes responsibility for all the rebellion of his creatures. Jesus suffers the abandonment of his father so that we never have to. What a glorious truth. What incredible love and sacrifice. What redemption is offered to us. Redemption simply being the act of buying a slave out of slavery. Like how he freed the Israelites from Egypt, our God is a redeemer God. We, the thief, are enslaved not to human owners, but to sin slaves of our own desires and although our culture defines freedom as being able to do whatever we want being able to sin however we want that is not true freedom true freedom is the freedom to live how we were made to live as god intended but all of us are caught up in the ranks of rebellion and so to buy us out of slavery a cost is required and jesus pays that debt so the thief has all these jigsaw pieces he's a rebel he realizes this, but he doesn't stop there. He realizes Jesus is the innocent one, willing to take his place. He sees the redemption that Jesus offers. So then crucially, and our fourth hour, the thief responds. Verse 42, the thief said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he, that's Jesus, said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The thief sees the sign above Jesus' head, king of the Jews. And in Jesus, he sees a king and leader unlike any he could have hoped for. 
not a Caesar who uses power to oppress, not a Barabbas who uses violence to revolt. The cross of Christ is the subversion of power. Christ's endurance of the cross, despising the shame, Christ's mind-boggling mercy in the midst of mockery, Christ's substitutionary sacrifice, this, this is true power. This is a, a true king and kingdom worth being a part of. This is a servant king worth following. This is a God worthy of worship. And so the thief says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. A simple prayer, a simple plea for mercy and the hope of glory despite certain death. And Jesus answers his confession with absolute assurance. Truly, truly today, you will be with me in paradise. And here we see a genuine deathbed conversion. One is recorded in the Bible so that no one may despair, but only one so that no one may presume. But what grace. The thief had done nothing to deserve reward, but God is rich in mercy. There is no reason for any of us to boast, for all salvation is the same, not of ourselves. And what a hope. Jesus answered the thief far beyond his expectation. The thief had some distant time in mind. Jesus said, today. The thief asked to be remembered. Jesus said, you will be with me. The thief looked for a kingdom. Jesus promised paradise. And paradise for the true believer is being with his saviour in perfect relationship forever. So we're nearly done. We've thought of our five hours and thankfully in fewer than five hours. We've thought of this blueprint for the greatest decision anyone can ever make. How to start a relationship with the God who made you and gave himself for you. And if you don't know the Lord Jesus as your personal saviour tonight, I pray that you would consider him at the cross. Consider all that he's done for you. See that you, like the thief, are a rebel against God's better plan for you. Realise your sin and his perfection. Wonder at his redemption that he offers you. He can buy you freedom from sin and death. Start a relationship with the God of the universe that will stretch into an eternity of joy, peace and paradise. And for those of us who are Christians, those of us who are in relationship with Christ, remember Hebrews 12. Look to him. Consider him. Continue as you came to him. As we all struggle against our sinful flesh and stumble and fall, remember this. We have a great high priest. While Caiaphas is a high priest who accuses Jesus, even though he's innocent, Jesus is the high priest who pleads our case forever, crying, Father, forgive. Jesus is the Lamb of God sacrificed in our place, in whom we find refuge and shall never be condemned. He is the good shepherd who will carry us home. I close with these wonderful words from John Stott, which really capture the wonder of the cross. I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time, after a while, I've had to turn away. And in imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, 
tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorns pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in light of his. There is still a question mark against human suffering, but over it we boldly stamp another mark, the cross that symbolizes divine suffering. The cross of Christ is God's only self-justification in such a world as ours. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. Let's pray now. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this true story of when your son, the Lord Jesus, was on this earth 2,000 years ago. We thank you for his incredible forgiveness that Jesus showed on the cross. To the cries, to the thief, and to all mankind in all times. We thank you for the thief and the blueprint that his story gives us for how we can come to you. Father, we confess our sin. We realize our rebellion, our daily rebellion against your better plan for us, our failure to trust you. Forgive us. But we thank you for Jesus' perfect life, the innocent one. We thank you that he offered himself willingly as our substitute, that he is the spotless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lord, we thank you for our redemption, that you have bought us out of bondage to sin and death. I pray that anyone this Easter, Lord, who does not know you, would respond to your call in their life and run back into the arms of the Father who loves them more than they could ever know. And for those of us, Lord, who try to follow you and fail every day, thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit, who lives in us and changes us. Thank you that we know a risen Saviour, a great high priest who intercedes for us and that you're leading us home to paradise with you. For we pray all these things in our precious Saviour's name. Amen.